Isn't it a great blessing to be able to be here tonight? I realize there's a bit of treachery associated with the weather with which we're faced this evening, but it's so good to appreciate the brotherhood, the fellowship that we each enjoy, and the opportunity this hour is even on an occasion like this one to be together. As always, we, it's our desire to lift high, of course, the banner of the Word of God in all ways, and we'd like to do that with respect to the book of Daniel again this evening. So if you'd be turning to that book, we will look at one of the other aspects or features of that beautifully interesting Old Testament book of major prophecy. It is the third installment in our series of lessons, actually, and so by way of very brief review, admittedly, I think we've already been impressed with the degree to which history can often provide at least evidences for a great faith-building consideration. When you and I appreciate that prophecies expressed in the Word of God came true exactly, minutely, and powerfully exactly the way that the Word of God said that it would, it's almost as if history was written before its time. And when that came to pass, it has already built up within us an appreciation of the magnitude of how God rules in the kingdoms of men. I suppose as we come to the middle part of that statement on that particular slide, as we consider the element of faith, maybe it takes us to the opening verse of Hebrews 11, sometimes called the faith chapter of the New Testament, in which it says, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. We have often seen then that those worthies of the Old Testament, Daniel in particular in this book, was blessed to at least give, be given a vision, a movement through time. So far our study as we culminate that particular slide has been like this. We noted in Daniel chapter 1, the features of the life of Daniel, what brought him to this far distant place from his homeland. Then in the second lesson, we noticed a tremendous dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Daniel was blessed by God to interpret it. We looked at one aspect of the interpretation last week. We'll continue it tonight. It is with that in mind, let's proceed on then to a brief review of that dream that he had. And then let's also develop the next part of it. You'll notice on that slide, we learned last week that relatively early in Nebuchadnezzar's reign as king of Babylon, he was given by God a communication, a communication in the form of a dream. In that dream, he saw a tremendous image. It had a head of gold, arms and an upper chest area, if you please, of silver. Furthermore, it also had a midsection and a thigh section of brass. Below that, a lower leg section of iron, but its feet were mixed of iron and clay. But rather shockingly in the dream, as amazing as that image appeared, there was a stone that crushed into it or rolled into it and pulverized it. That stone became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Initially, Nebuchadnezzar couldn't remember the dream. But even as God blessed Daniel with the ability not only to interpret it, He not only gave him, of course, that, but the dream too. As you and I studied all of that last time, we looked at that section, the golden section, and found that it represented Babylon. In fact, God specifically said that it did. Thou art the head of gold. But now tonight we turn our attention to the silver section. What was that kingdom? What was a particular matter in mind 
And again, might we ask, we would anticipate that there was a particular, rather noteworthy kingdom to which that silver section pointed. As you and I come to it tonight, we're going to observe that there was a second part of our lesson last Sunday evening. Not only did we look into chapter 2, that interesting V or that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, we also noticed in chapter 7, about half century later, Daniel had a dream. Really, I should say a vision. And in that vision, he saw the waters of the Mediterranean Sea troubled, and one by one, four beasts came up out of those waters. You and I noticed last week about the first of those beasts that had come out of that water. It again was another representation for the Babylonian kingdom. It in fact was so well represented, as you can see, each of those beasts was diverse. That first one, the first beast had been like a lion. You'll notice at the bottom of that slide. No ordinary lion, though, because it had eagle's wings, but the wings were plucked at a point. And then we notice, rather amazingly, that lion was lifted up, and features not unlike characteristic of humanity were given to it. At that point, that ended that lesson, but it does make us wonder about the second beast. Could I ask you to notice? The second beast was like a bear, the text says. You might even at this point wish to read the specific description given to us in Daniel, the seventh chapter. Verse number five reads it like this, this beast that rose up out of that water. And behold, another beast, a second, like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side. And it had three ribs in the mouth of it, between the teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. And that one little verse is all that we have with respect to this second beast that Daniel saw. As you'll notice at the bottom, that particular statement again will have a great harmony to the silver section of the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had. On the next slide, could we again note the picture? We looked at this picture last time, and you'll notice again the golden section at the top represented the Babylonian kingdom. This evening, as we turn our attention to the silver section, you'll notice it was, at least in terms of area, a larger section. At this point, on we go to our next slide. Because now is a picture of a bear. We noted just a moment ago that here in Daniel 7, in that vision that Daniel had, there was a bear, and you may notice it's raised up on one side. Not only that, if you can see it well enough, there are three ribs in its mouth. This bear, as you can well tell, would no doubt be representative of something characteristic of yet another kingdom, yet another civilization of mankind. Following that bear and following the other things that we've noted, let's now give some detailed consideration to what it was, apparently, that these two portions of the book of Daniel represented. I would suspect any of us would then rather quickly give thought historically to a kingdom that arose somewhat after the Babylonian one, a kingdom that would at least be fairly represented by these things we've seen. Silver should, it would seem, be a likely characteristic metallic-wise that would be descriptive of it. And not only that, something like a bear with three ribs in its mouth, 
would seemingly be a reasonable characterization, at least of it at some point in its history. May I ask you to notice some of these details that are given to you and to me. First of all, we're not left to wonder. This does represent a kingdom because God said that it does. In Daniel 2 verse 39 it says, "...and a kingdom after thee." Again, a kingdom. It would follow the Babylonian. This kingdom, as you can well tell, immediately leads us to ask, what set of nations or what set of kingdoms ultimately reign supreme over that portion of the earth following the days of the Babylonian one? A brief excursion into history might in fact be in order. There were in fact two separate regimes or two regions of that part of the world. They began each one to have a degree of ascendancy, not about midway through the period that would be representative of the Babylonian one. Notice the first of them, the kingdom of Media, M-E-D-I-A. Sometimes it's just called the kingdom of the Medes. That was a kingdom that was rather well known. It existed north and east of what that day in Babylon would have been. But there was also a Persian kingdom. It was located south and east. Each one of these kingdoms, again, were reasonably well known by that period in history. But maybe the next point would be in order. The Word of God frequently calls your attention and mine to them, doesn't it? Could I at least call our attention to three examples? In the book of Esther, that king that you and I read about from really the first paragraph of chapter 1 onward, that king known as Ahasuerus, he was a Persian monarch, a Persian king, and how notable his kingdom was. But notice a, a second example. What about Cyrus? He occupies a significant role in the book of Isaiah. In fact, we'll even find in the book of Ezra that he is mentioned and in such a positive light. And yet, he's a Persian king. Not only that, what about Darius? He will take center stage before we're finished with the book of Daniel. And yet, we know that he was a Median king. You see, these monarchies, these kingdoms of individuals and men were re reasonably well known. But something interesting occurred. These two kingdoms developed rather independently and each had at least a reasonable point of strength. But something interesting happened when they united. You see, the daughter of the king of Media married Cyrus. And when that happened, these two kingdoms united to be even far stronger than they were previously. I might ask us to consider that development and that unity, especially in light of that bear we saw, and especially in light also of the portion of that silver section of the image. At the bottom, might you notice with me, this kingdom in terms of its actual size was larger than the Babylonian one was by a fairly good amount. It was extensive in its size. Might we notice though that the Word of God especially pointed out something to us. This section was silver. The Babylonian had been gold. Silver is not as expensive as gold. Silver is not as refined or at least as valuable by monetary trade as gold is. Clear to see then that by some means of God's presentation, this Medo-Persian empire was inferior to the Babylonian one. Here are at least some thoughts as to what that inferiority may have included. First of all, we know it did not include size. 
again, the Medo-Persian kingdom was larger by a good amount than the Babylonian had been. But isn't it interesting? All the records of which I was able to find, including some references later in Daniel, suggest that the character of morality was much less in this kingdom than it had been in Babylon. Although the Babylonians certainly had some degree of well-known nature for cruelty, it wasn't as far widespread as it was in the Medo-Persian. Maybe another example, effectiveness and organization. I believe all of us would agree that any kingdom, if it is to maintain, if it is to sustain, it needs a degree of organization, especially if it's large in size. And that seemingly wasn't nearly as refined in the Medo-Persian Empire as it had been in Babylon. Maybe one last thought. You'll notice that there's a degree of civility in relation to the Babylonian kingdom that seems not to be as present here. A respect for authority, if you please. I would ask that maybe as we keep those thoughts in mind, how might that manifest itself? As we look at this next slide, I might ask you to notice, we mentioned about a bear earlier, and I've placed a picture of one down there at the bottom. Again, if you look closely, you'll see the three ribs in its mouth, just as the description of Daniel 7 verse 5 had been given to us. You'll notice, though, beginning at the top, it's interesting, I believe, for any of us to consider. What about the developments of each one of these empires, Media on the one hand and Persia on the other? The Word of God seemingly suggests that something about that distinction does occupy a notable role. Might we notice? First, there was a degree of fierceness to it, much like a bear robbed, let's say, of its cubs or robbed of its whelps. And any of us know that a mother bear, if you start to bother or at least get too close to those cubs, one would be in a great element of danger. This bear, you'll notice, is risen up on one side. Although one would appreciate a symmetry, of course, to a bear, two legs on the left, two on the right, we appreciate that raised up on one side, there was a greater sense of aggressiveness and power and mind attached to one of the sides. Think back to the Median and the Persian empires. It's a little bit fascinating, again, to notice the way in which that description is given to us. Raised up on one side. One of the kingdoms became dominant over the other one. One of them became, if you please, a superseding brilliant effect compared to the other one. Not to ruin that story, but it was Persia. Although media, of course, had a degree of dominance at the first, ultimately Persia overruled and she became, between the two, by far the greater one. It would seem that the bear raised up on one side pointed to the reality of that domination by Persia over media. Maybe in addition to that, could we at least pause to ponder this? What about the time frame? In Daniel chapter 7, God gave that vision to Daniel roughly 15 to 16 years prior to the ending of the Babylonian kingdom and then it was Babylon that was conquered by this Medo-Persian empire. Isn't it amazing? It really did not come all that long after this vision was given. Maybe that fascination leads us to note this. What about the ribs in its mouth? 
that seemingly suggest that this bear in highlighting this Medo-Persian empire does suggest that it had already enjoyed a degree of victory. Even by that point in time, some smaller kingdoms had already been conquered by that empire. But there was a greater victory awaiting. That victory, no doubt, was Babylon. They conquered Babylon. As powerful as Babylon had been, the Medo-Persian conquered them in 539 B.C. You might notice... Finally, one statement, Arise, devour much flesh. This empire, though perhaps at this point not nearly yet as great as it would become, much greater victories were yet at its future. Again, pointing to the victory over Babylon, it would seem. With all those thoughts about those features, I would suggest to you that God wasn't finished revealing some of these attributes and features. Because in the reading tonight in Daniel chapter 8, there is more to be said. And could I point you to that briefly as we discuss yet another animal? It had been a bear so far. What about a ram? You may have noted that as this was read in our hearing just a moment ago, it again says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. Now we might remember that that vision at the first had been this one where the beast came out of the water. But now he says, a short time later, another vision was delivered by God to that, that gentleman Daniel. Might I ask you to notice at the top, this was only a couple of years after that first vision. Notice again, we're inching closer and closer to that great victory. Notice what happened. Verse number 2 of Daniel chapter 8. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was by the river Vulai. Then I lifted up mine eyes, and saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram, which had two horns. You might already pause to notice Daniel saw a ram. Now, as you and I give thought to what the ram represented, isn't it fascinating to give thought to one by one the developments of this chapter and those that follow it pointing to these historical features and these historical facts. The ram had two horns. It goes on to say the two horns were high, but one of them was higher than the other one. And the higher one came up last. Verse 4, I saw the ram pushing westward, northward, and southward so that no beasts might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver him out of his hand, but he did according to his will and became great. I'm sure all of us by now are wondering what the ram represented. What message did God deliver to Daniel by way of the ram? I might ask you to notice very interestingly what is developed in these verses. I've just tried to summarize them. You may notice the ram pushed in a particular direction, and the ram was powerful enough to do that which was his will. Then notice what came next. If we had continued reading, you might have noted very carefully verse number 5. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat, a male goat, came from the west on the face of the whole earth and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which had been standing before the river. 
and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. We've come face to face with both a he-goat and a ram. We aren't left to wonder very long what each one of these represented. If you were to go ahead in chapter 8 and notice something, in verse number 20 we're told what these represented. It says, The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. So that ram that had, we had seen early in chapter number 8, that ram that was so successful and it seems had pushed in these particular directions, you'll notice that the two horns upon that ram were representative of the kings of Media on the one hand and Persia on the other. I'm sure we each remember, though, that as those horns came up, though both of them were high, one of them was higher than the other one, and the higher horn came up last. If you like to make notes in your Bible, again, the higher horn was Persia. It came up after the median one, and it rose higher. It ultimately had domination in regard to the two. As you think about these kings of Media and Persia, we aren't left then in the character of the identity of the ram. I might suggest, though, that we're left to wonder about the he-goat. Who was this goat, then, that trampled underfoot the ram? You might need to wait till next Sunday night. As we get to the next element in the image, we're going to find that, in fact, by virtue of the development of history, there was a powerful and notable figure who trampled underfoot the Medo-Persian Empire, and that he-goat will, of course, be represented by that. As you think about the development so far, here are some pictures. Sometimes we're all, I suppose, in a position of having heard that a picture is worth a thousand words. Maybe you and I can remember then a ram. And you'll notice that one of the horns was higher or bigger than the other one. This is some artist's rendition of this. I wouldn't in any way claim this is exactly what Daniel saw, but at least it gives us the impression of a ram. But you'll notice over at the far right a he-goat with but one horn. And that he-goat ultimately had superseding power over this, over this ram. We'll look next Sunday night its its identity. But at the bottom right, you'll notice that the he-goat trampled the ram, defeated it. And the swiftness with which it happened was amazingly provided and prophesied in the Bible. As we think about the history of all of this... I'm sure we each stand in amazement at some lessons that might quickly be drawn from it. Keep in mind, as Daniel was given the impressiveness of all of this, down the stream of time, did things happen like the vision said that it would? Was there two kingdoms that arose, and did one of them ultimately have domination over the other? And remember, this was before those kingdoms came to those full prominences you and I could quickly and overwhelmingly say, any quick reading of a history book of that time period would affirm that what God delivered to Daniel was exactly what ultimately happened. I've just tried to highlight it quickly like these things. Isn't it amazing to give thought to the historical accuracy of the book of Daniel? Now you and I would quickly lift high the banner of biblical prophecy even in relation to any Old Testament prophecy. 
And by the way, many of them, of course, ultimately would speak about the coming of one who, of course, was born of a virgin and one who was born exactly in the place where it was said that he'd be. Over 300 Old Testament prophecies spoke about the coming of a Messiah. But along the way, there was to be a kingdom, in fact, a pair of kingdoms. On the one hand, Media. On the other, Persia. It would follow the Babylonian. It would be yet inferior to it. And that's exactly the way it was. These empires that you and I know as these two kingdoms, they occupied exactly the features characterized by that bear. One side did rise up in domination, ultimately in preference to the other. The three ribs in its mouth, not only the victories it had shared and understood, but even the greater ones it was soon to have. And as we mentioned earlier, only about 16 years after Daniel received this vision, the bear awoke again and it conquered Babylon. The lion that had been represented by the Babylonian one, that lion was defeated totally. You'll notice as you look at the length of the period of time that empire lasted. We'll see that more fully again next Sunday. But the Medo-Persian Empire in totality, once its domination began in 539, it would last a little bit beyond 200 years. So it lasted much longer than Babylon did. Perhaps in finery to all of that. Wouldn't it be fair to at least comment briefly about the element of judgment? I've included that in the following words. You and I serve, obey, and worship an awesome God. I'm sure you're as amazed as I to give thought to the development of history. Could any of us give thought to the detailed character of something going to happen a couple hundred years from now? You and I know the human family can't predict next week. Certainly not next year and certainly not several hundred years from now. Left to ourselves, that is well beyond our capability. Among other things, doesn't that give us a renewed appreciation to the fact that God wrote this book, that He revealed in fullness that which was its detailed character? This was not Daniel's idea. He would have had no idea about this. But God did, and He revealed it to Daniel. That leads me to note one final thing. Many other books of the Old Testament do not contain details like this in particular. What was so special about this time frame such that this was vital to the working of the providential plan of God? May you and I never forget that one of the features, and we'll see it before our series is finished, but one of the features that was so critical was to appreciate that all of this pointed to Christ, every bit of it. There was something critical about Babylon, something critical about Medo and Persia that was laying a foundation for the coming of the Son of God. The world was being prepared. Things were being orchestrated and put in place. Every element was, in fact, being rightly done so that in time the Son of God could come at the right time. Isn't it true that in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son? made of a woman, made under the law, Galatians 4 verse 4. The fullness of time God was preparing. The Medo-Persian Empire lasted to carry out the work which God had in mind for that kingdom to do. And so in light of this judgment, you and I can remember a number of times, such as Isaiah 46, 9 and Isaiah 8, 19, in which the attribute of God revealing history had a purpose 
Today it serves the purpose of encouraging your faith and mine. For we serve a God who rules in the kingdoms of men. One final thought would be that Deuteronomy 18.22. I'm sure we readily remember what the sentiment of that verse was. In the days of the Old Testament, how could you identify a false prophet? If what he prophesied did not come to pass, you knew that man was a false prophet. He was not of God. What does that say about Daniel? When the things of his book came to pass, exactly, minutely, and precisely as he said that he would, shouldn't that have given the people, let's say, of the Lord's day, when they could look back into the days of Daniel and say, all of this did happen. No wonder when Jesus quoted from the book of Daniel, in Matthew chapter 24, they should have had the greatest consideration for what it was that was found in that noble little book of Old Testament prophecy. As we've looked then at this Medo-Persian empire tonight, perhaps this little picture of a map will highlight at least an extent of that empire. It's in the dashed line. See how vast that empire became before ultimately it was gone? far greater than the Babylonian had been. And as you look at that Babylonian empire, I know it's difficult to see it. It's in a different color. But it is there about the middle section, far smaller. Our God was preparing the earth for the coming of His Son. He was preparing the minds and characters of individuals to receive the Great One that would be the offer of the salvation of God. In addition to that particular empire, here's another one. That shows you, perhaps from a different perspective, a set of these overlaid on top of each other. You see Syria and Babylon, Persia and some others. The vastness, might I suggest, will carry us further in our study. Remember, there's two more sections, at least major parts to that image. There's a brassy section and then an iron section. And in many ways, they're going to be far more vast than those we've seen yet. Our God had a plan. He is preparing the earth for the coming of Christ. Before our series is over, we'll see a number of the details, specifics of what He was doing with these kingdoms, at least for tonight, as we conclude our lesson. Our study has been of Medo and Persia. That empire has long since now been relegated to the dustbins of history. Along the way, it served its purpose. What about you and me tonight? Are you serving your purpose in the vastness of that which is the kingdom of God? Are you and I fulfilling our God-given duties and obligations? Are we being faithful servants to the Lord? I trust that we are. I hope that we are. We each certainly would wish to be in our finer moments. If tonight we could assist somebody in a public response to the gospel, just as it was in that ancient day, God rules still today. None of us know when time's going to end. It could be soon. It could very well be soon. The important thing is to always be ready. If you're not a faithful Christian tonight, maybe you're in a position then in life where you've now come to realize that though never a Christian you have become yet, you know the urgency of the hour. Tonight, if we could assist you in confirming or making note of your belief, taking your idea of repentance and confession we would assist you to baptize you into Christ. If we could help you in that way tonight, what a joyous occasion it'd be. If you have become a Christian at some former time, but you haven't been as faithful and true as the Lord would demand of you, 
why not come back to your first love this very evening? In Revelation 2, verses 4 and 5, the church in Ephesus was told to return to your first love. And that's what's being sought for you tonight. If we could pray to God on your behalf, we'd love to do it. We would only ask that you let us know some of the specifics so that we could beseech God on your behalf. If you'd like to do that tonight, don't delay. But why not come even at the moment while together we stand and while we sing?